This is my friend Michael Lerner. Michael is a uh, rabbi. His uh, uh, community is Beit Tikkun in San Francisco. Uh, Michael is also widely recognized as a very important contemporary, obviously contemporary, social commenter. <laughs> social commenter. Um, he's also the uh, editor and publisher of Tikkun magazine. Very important uh, person in the Jewish renewal movement. The author of uh, many books, and most recently of this book, either Spirit Matters or Spirit Matters. So, uh, and uh, he's come to talk about it. I thought I would read just one of the many paragraphs that's. Uh, uh, overlined with yellow, which is how I mostly read. Starts, uh, this is a paragraph following uh, an exercise. I'll read you the exercise. Here's the exercise. Take anything in your life, a musical instrument, a computer, a car, a piece of fruit that sits in your home but was grown far away, a television, a phone book, a phone line, a book. Now try to imagine all the steps that needed to happen before the moment that human beings began to evolve and the moment that you were able to have this thing in your life. If you ask what knowledge those who brought, to this, who brought this object into your life had to have and those who developed that knowledge had to learn from previous people who developed their knowledge, you will quickly be overwhelmed by the amount of cooperation through thousands of years that made all the things that populate your daily life possible. Try this exercise with a different object or aspect of your life every day, and you'll soon see how much each of us is a beneficiary of the goodness and cooperation of past generations. And that's what the universe is, a vast system of cooperation. Though many contemporary social institutions teach us to see others as enemies or potential rivals for scarce, scarce resources, the truth is that we live in a world in which the basic principle is one of cooperation. Um, well, first of all, <clears throat> I want to say how honored I am to be in your presence. And, <laughs> um, I've had the opportunity to, um, to learn mindfulness from you and both from your books and from intensive that I did with you and uh, um, just want to tell you how very, very honored I am that you brought me here to speak with you and um, uh, in, your, in this setting, which I also love very, very much. Um, and also I should say that it's always been an intense challenge to one part of my religious up, uh, upbringing the part that says, thou shalt not covet. <laughs> In this beautiful place. <laughs> uh, um, anyway, definitely puts it to a challenge. Um, uh, I um, actually have brought, um, I brought some copies of the book because you, you said that there might be, a, some people might want it or or and so I'm going to pass pass it around, 
and also since I, I, my sense is, is that few people h here in this community have seen Tikkun, I thought I'd also uh, pass this around, cop copies of it, so after you've seen it, you can just pass it back to other, other, other people. Um, Um, what I want to talk about uh, a little bit is um, the way in which spirit could matter and should matter in our daily lives and the ways in which it hasn't or has been pushed out. Um, I think through um, most of recorded history, um, there's been a, a huge amount of spiritual consciousness, spiritual awareness. Um, and by that, I say I mean by spirit, I, I'm referring to those aspects of reality that are not um, subject to empirical verification, that cannot be measured, um, that incline, um, that make possible freedom in the, in the universe, that incline the, us um, towards um, and incline the universe. Um, in a way that is not either neutral or bad, but inclines it towards good, and that uh, makes it possible for us to see the universe in a, uh, from the standpoint of awe and wonder, and not solely from the standpoint of domination and control. That consciousness, that spiritual consciousness, um, has often been um, appropriated by religious systems that were themselves part of established orders that actually were interested in domination and control. And this has created a tension um, throughout, uh, throughout human history um, in those religious and spiritual communities between the fundamental spiritual insight that inclined the world towards good goodness, towards love, towards celebration, um, and towards a fundamental freedom and a sense of the interconnectedness of all being on the one hand. And on the other hand, um, the reality that those spiritual practices were often uh, done in the context of social realities that uh, in which some people were given more power than others, some people were given more wealth than others. And in fact, the spiritual systems themselves were often used to justify that or often were um, associated with beliefs that justified that and that taught people that nothing fundamental could be different in the world, that the world was stuck, that there was inevitability to um, the way the world was, not just the physical world, but the social world, that the social world was stuck and that nothing fundamental could be changed. And this tension has, um, uh, has crea created throughout the history of religious and spiritual systems um, movements to try to change that, try to bring the social world and the, um, and the spiritual and religious practices back into alignment with, um, um, with the fundamental spiritual insight of the interconnectedness of all, the equal value of all, the, um, the sense that every part was um, to be treasured and sacred and not that some parts would have more power or more control than others. And um, so there have been renewal movements throughout, throughout um, the history of, um, of spiritual life, religious life. Renewal movements that in some ways came forward to say in some way or other 
something is off here in our spiritual practice and in, in the ways in which spiritual practice has been um, appropriated by, um, by established orders. Something, is, something isn't right. Uh, we need to go back to our fundamental spiritual insight. We need to take it away from um, or switch its focus from justifying inequalities in power and domination to um, a deeper sense of the equal sacredness of all and the interconnectedness of all and the equal value of all and the possibility of healing and transformation in the world, what we in the Jewish world call tikkun. That's the name of the magazine, and tikkun is a Hebrew word that means this very concept of healing and transformation. Um, tikkun olam, the transformation and healing of the world. Um, so this, um, this tension um, often created um, um, fantastically exciting new developments in spiritual systems. One could argue, argue, and I do in another book of mine, Jewish Renewal, that Judaism was one such renewal movement uh, that it started as that, and yet very quickly got away from that and became another one of the problems. And, um, and then the prophets came forward to renew Judaism. And, uh, and some people would argue Christianity was a renewal movement within Judaism. And then quickly within Christianity, there were attempts to renew it as it got away from its fundamental insights. At some point in this kind of ongoing process, particularly in the West, and now I'm talking specifically about Western spiritual traditions for a second, um, some point in the late Middle Ages, a very large number of people began to say, something in our spiritual uh, and religious traditions is so distorted that instead of renewing it, we need to go away from it. That is, if our spiritual and religious traditions seem um, so much um, used and appropriated by people who seem to say that what they, uh, that, who talk a language of love and caring and community and spirit, but in their actual practice seem so interested in accumulating wealth, accumulating power, that maybe that's all that's really real. That maybe that's what really counts, what can be, that that's the, that's the real thing because the very people who are our spiritual leaders um, and the embodiments of the spirituality seem so good at accumulating the wealth and power in this world. Um, and uh, there are some, and I know, I'm not an expert enough to know where, in what parts of the Eastern world this was also true, but at least there are many who argue that Eastern religions also had this same kind of contradiction in which, the, uh, in which some of the religious traditions uh, did manage to accumulate quite a bit of wealth and power as their, uh, uh, as their focus as well. But let's go back to the Western world where we live to say that in this world, a, as a result of this, a new religion began to um, emerge. A new religion that said that, uh, in contrast to these uh, old spiritual religions, that said that what is real is that which can be presented to one's senses. That what, if it can be touched, if it can be felt, um, if it can be seen or heard, and if it can be intersubjectively validated, we can all see it in the same way at the same time, and it can be measured, objectively measured, then that's what's real. And everything else that can't be really doesn't deserve our attention or respect. Um, that everything else that can't be uh, um, measured in this, objectively measured, intersubjectively validated through empirical experience, that doesn't really deserve our, our respect. Um, it doesn't deserve our attention. It is 
as, and as this world, as this religious system became more and more dominant, um, can call it empiricism, some people now call it scientism, although one of the things that I say in the book, I try to very clearly distinguish between science as a practice and scientism as a worldview. Because science as a practice seems to me to be um, uh, extremely important and valuable and to be honored. And scientism as a worldview, if it means that all that is real is that which can be, um, that which can be subject to scientific inquiry, um, that's something different, and that's the world. That's the religion that I'm uh, uh, talking about at the moment. Um, this religion um, began to say, and in fact, it's become the dominant religion. So much the dominant religion that most people don't even get it that it's a religion. But that's what it is to be a dominant religion. The dominant religion is one where you live in it in such a way that it just is the way it is. Or another way of putting it is, is that it is the common sense. And the, the very word that we use that, the common sense, um, is part of the triumph of this religion. Or the way in which it dismisses everything else, uh, everything that's not important, is dismissed as nonsense. And, and that is to say, it doesn't come to us through our sense datum, so it is not worthy of our respect. We use that word nonsense, and that's, it's part of the triumph of this religious system. Now, the reason I call it a religious system is because um, it has no different foundation than any other religious system. That is, its criterion, by its fundamental faith statement, is the following. Um, that which is real, or that which can be known, is that which can be objectively measured and presented to our senses. That statement that I've just said cannot be presented to our senses or, object, or objectively measured. It is by its own criterion of truth, false. Do, 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 do you see what I mean? By its own criterion of what can be known, it can't be known. It is a metaphysical statement at the same level as other metaphysical or religious systems. Only we would never say that because since we're born into this religious system, it is so dominant in the world that everyone simply takes it as common sense. It is the, it is the dominant religious system within which we function and through which we shape a world. And, um, and as it shaped the world, it increasingly pushed out of the public sphere. It said to, said to us that the public sphere, when we are together, that the public sphere should only be um, the place where our shared dominant religion functions. And that shared dominant religion was the one that says that that which is real is that which can be subjective uh, uh, sense datum and objectively measured. And that which uh, is not is nonsense and should not be there. Um, so our, we created a public life which increasingly was dominated in this way. And uh, the spheres of spiritual insight um, aesthetic insight, moral insight, and love were increasingly pushed out of the public sphere and into various private spheres. So that the public sphere increasingly um, was one in which people felt that it was inappropriate to raise spiritual or ethical questions. And in fact, in the 20th century, we, see the, we, we saw the culmination of that in the creation of um, a public sphere in which huge amounts of public resources were 
uh, used to build instruments of mass destruction, uh, huge amounts of corporate activity used um, to accumulate wealth without regard to the future consequences of, of the survivability of the planet. And, um, uh, and in fact, such that right now, most knowledgeable people in, with regard to environmental issues say, if we just continue doing what we're doing at the rate that we're doing it, that, well, the life, life won't be possible on this planet within, and then some people say 50 years, some people say 75 years, some people say 100 years, the optimists say 100 years, whatever, but pretty much everybody sees that, um, that the current rate of acceleration of the destruction of the environment would not, be sustain would not make this Earth sustainable for human life and maybe any form of life or certainly any form of animal life. Um, and many, many wonderful people participate in these activities uh, in the, um, and participate in them and say, you know, it, it doesn't feel right to me what, um, what this totality of our public life is about only as a responsible member of the society, I can't raise those issues in the public sphere. I can't raise those issues in the public sphere because it violates the fundamental religion of uh, that uh, I'm a professional. What does it mean to be a professional? It means to go into the public sphere and obey the dominant religion. It means uh, which is, the dominant religion says, don't bring your ethical here. Don't bring your spiritual here. This is a place where the only, there's only one religion in this public sphere, and it is the religion that says that the only thing that's real is that which can be publicly observable and uh, verifiable through, um, uh, in some uh, measured, uh, through measurements. So consequently, all these ethical and spiritual issues have no place here. And so many people will then go home from a day's work in that setting and join the Sierra Club or join some other personal activity um, to offset what they have been doing all day in, in the world of work, because they know that there's something wrong with it, but they also don't feel that it's appropriate, or um, um, it doesn't fit there, uh, fit what one does as a professional in that public sphere. Now, meanwhile, at the same time, most of us who spend most of our waking lives in the world of work find that this same religious system has created a world of work in which um, over and over again, hour after hour, day after day, what we're learning is in the world of work, what we're being taught every, virtually every, every hour in the world of work, is that there is a bottom line. And that the bottom line of the world of work is to maximize wealth and power. And for someone, in some institutions it may also be ego, um, for our supervisor, for the owner of the corporation, for somebody who has more power than we, and our task is to maximize the bottom line. And if we don't do that, we're going to lose our jobs or certainly not do very much in the way of advancing in our job. So hour after hour, day after day, we're learning and relearning the bottom line. Maximize wealth and power and eco for someone. Uh, and as we do this, we are simultaneously learning to look at other human beings, primarily from the standpoint of what can you do for me? How can you be of use? What can, what can you do to advance my career, my task, my goal, whatever it is that I'm involved in? Unlearning how to see other human beings as created in the image of God, seeing, learning to see them in terms of how they can be of use, how they will, um, how they will help. 
And um, so that hour after hour, this also, this consciousness is be being absorbed. Um, the the best-selling book of the 1980s was called, um, in, that, in that decade, was called Looking Out for Number One. <laughs> now, people bought that book because, and made it the best, the best seller of the decade, because they felt that they didn't know how to do it well enough. That uh, it, was it was obvious to them that the people who were more successful, who had more power in the world, were really good at that, at looking out for number one, and they needed to learn the skills better. Um, and today, also, many people fill up seminars on each weekend trying to learn the skills, to how to advance oneself, how to get the skills, sometimes interpersonal skills that are necessary, uh, whatever the skills are that will advance one in this looking out for number one. But the consequence of all of this is that when people come home from work, it's extremely difficult to take off the ways that we've learned to look at ourselves and each other as though they were so many dirty clothes. Uh, and instead, people's main complaint or major complaint in the society is uh, that we feel surrounded by people who seem to be just out for themselves, or look, who look out for themselves, who can't be really counted on, and so forth. Now, I know in saying it this way that I'm certainly exaggerate. That is to say, there's a continuum, and not everybody is in the extreme of the continuum. But what I am talking about is a tendency that is increasingly the case. Increasingly the case, more and more the case. And as it becomes increasingly the case, as the market consciousness seeps deeper and deeper into people's uh, uh, consciousness, um, more and more people find themselves engaged in a spiritual crisis. And that spiritual crisis, on the one hand, it might be good for those of us who are, you know, like I'm a rabbi or, a, you know, a spirit rock center or whatever. It's, so people are filling up, the, <laughs> filling up our, our places because there's a spiritual crisis. But it's not so good for, on a, um, not so good for the society as a whole that there is this spiritual crisis. It's a spiritual crisis that manifests partly in the difficulty of raising children with your own values, because children turn on the television and very quickly learn that the values you're trying to teach them either um, have nothing to do with how the society is running, and, and if, in fact, you're at all economically successful, they quickly come to suspect that you're probably lying to them, because you didn't yourself, you couldn't possibly be living by the values you're teaching if, um, uh, if you're successful in the society. Um, it's a spiritual crisis that manifests in friendships because increasingly friendships um, are based on a kind of exchange relationship. I give to you on the basis of the ex reasonable expectation that you give back an equal amount to me. Whereas, um, which has its limitations because as people get older or sicker um, uh, and they're not able to reasonably be expected to give back an equal amount, they often report that their friends are distancing that they're not there as much, that the element of solidarity that used to be there has decreased. Solidarity was you were there for people even when you had no reasonable expectation that they could give back an equal amount at some future point in their lives. And um, most dramatically, it manifests in loving relationships where um, uh, people incre increasingly we have a marketplace of relationships, a situation in which um, in the dating world, uh, a kind of supermarket in which people treat each other as various commodities to be tasted. I taste this one, doesn't taste good. I go to the next one, taste this one, it's not so good. Taste the next one. And this can go on for five years. It can go on in some people's cases for 30 years. 
um, went endless amount of tasting around of the um, of the various products in the supermarket, um, and not recognizing other human beings as any as in another frame besides the frame of the market, and even when people begin to make commitments, and again I'm talking that posing this in a form in which you might say, well, it doesn't quite apply to me that way. I'm saying these are tendencies that increasingly apply in the society, not that they are totally and, uh, and the only reality in the society, that we increasingly find in, even in loving, in commitments, that people make commitments based on this kind of sense of, well, what's in it for me, a kind of um, consciousness in which people look at the other person and say, okay, Amongst the people who are likely to fall for me in the short run, this one, this one is likely to fulfill more of my needs than most of the others. Now, um, and some people actually literally make lists um, of what are the good and bad points of this person. Most people don't do that, but they do it in some internal way. The problem is, is that commit as commitments increasingly become, or this kind of uh, market calculation, who's going to be the one who will fulfill most of my needs or more of my needs than anybody else who's likely to fall for me, uh, there um, develops a tremendous insecurity in the society, tremendous insecurity in loving relationships, not just in the 50% of uh, marriages that end up in divorce, but also in the 50% that don't, because people can never be sure. They know that their partners are living in the same world that they are living in have absorbed the same um, market consciousness, the same sense that one should be a rational maximizer of self-interest. And so it's, it's uh, extreme, you know, knowing that, it's very, very, makes people very insecure because they can never be sure that at some point in their life, their partner won't be able to cut a better deal. And if they can cut a better deal, then, I mean, I found this in uh, for before I became a rabbi for 20 years was a psychotherapist and um, and now as a rabbi also finding people coming to me and they say well I'm we're leaving this relationship because I found somebody who can satisfy more of my needs and that's is seen as immediately trumping all 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 uh, arguments. I mean, what more can be said? If you are a rational maximizer of self-interest, then of course, how, <laughs> how, how could you possibly be expected to stay in a relationship where you could get more of your needs met in another one? Um, now, please don't misunderstand me, because I'm not trying to put anybody down or critique any, any individual. I actually believe that it's almost impossible almost impossible not to have some of this consciousness growing up in the society and um, absorbing its dynamics. It's almost impossible not to have this. But I say, um, so I don't mean to be judgmental of anybody being in this situation. I only mean to say that it causes tremendous amount of pain. Um, and it, it's part of the spiritual crisis. And here's where I say, yes, there is another possibility. Is there another way of being? Here's where I'm saying, so this is my, might be the answer, part of the answer to the question of how to say the title. Um, um, here's where I say, spirit matters. Spirit matters. Um, because um, there is another possible way. It, a spiritual consciousness would make it possible for us to look at other human beings and say to see her or him as um, as an embodiment of the sacred, 
to see another human being and say, um, I don't see you primarily in terms of what you can do for me. I, I see you in terms of being an embod a, a beautiful embodiment of the sacred energy of the universe. To look at another human being that way and to be able to see them primarily in that way is what is one of the elements of what a spiritual consciousness potentially makes possible for us. And similarly, to look at the universe and to, to look at the universe and to say, to transcend a narrow utilitarian frame so that I look at the universe and I don't look at it and say, gee, I wonder if there's anything here I can sell. I, could turn, I can turn into a commodity and sell it to somebody or anything here I can consume. But to look at the universe from the standpoint of awe and wonder and radical amazement at the grandeur of creation, this is what a spiritual consciousness has to offer and what's, why spirit matters. Um, now, the, so there is this spiritual crisis when these are, these, this way of understanding and looking at the world is denied. I've talked about it a lot in terms of the experience that we have every day in the world of work, which pushes us away from that. But I should also say that we get um, the loss of our spiritual consciousness um, in the socialization process and the education process of growing up in the society. Because um, parents, loving parents, good, decent, wonderful, loving parents, who have accepted that the world is the way in which it is and that one should ride the horse in the direction that it's going and accept the reality of the world as fundamentally unchangeable, then feel that their task is to get their children to have the skills that will make it possible for them to be successful in the world as constituted. And that very often translates very immediately and very, from a very young age in getting your kids to pay attention to pay attention to those aspects of the world that will be useful, to the things that can make it possible for you to succeed at school, for the things that will then make it possible for you. I mean, now it's not just succeeding in school, it's actually succeeding in your interview to get into the right preschool so that you can, <laughs> so that you can get into the right school, so you can get into the right high school, so you can get into the right college, right graduate school, right professional school, so that you eventually will have the job that will make you a living. And the people who are doing this to us, our parents and teachers, are not evil people or bad people. They're people who love us and care about us and want us to succeed in this world. But what they are simultaneously teaching us is to disattend to those aspects of reality that can't be used for something. Do, do you see what I'm saying? So they, they, can't, they can't be used. They, can't be, they, they, they aren't useful. They are... Um, dismissed as daydreaming, as, um, you know, as a silly waste of your time. And pay attention, kid. Pay attention to the things that you will need. And disattend to those things that can't be transformed in this useful way. So all through our growing up, we're already learning how to disattend to this, these realities. Well, the spiritual crisis I'm talking about then became a major fact in American politics because the political right came forward and said, there's a crisis, there's a spiritual crisis. And 
the bad news from my standpoint is they were right. <laughs> that there, <laughs> there is a spiritual crisis. Um, now, what the right often, and I'm just saying often, not always, and I don't mean to say everybody in the political right fits into this, right often did was then to say, and the spiritual crisis comes from, and then they would blame the demeaned others of the society. They would say, the spiritual crisis comes from African Americans, gays and lesbians, feminists, um, in some places Jews, in other places immigrants, um, whoever, and, and what they pointed to was the fact that these groups, groups that had been um, uh, systematically in the past denied rights and so forth, that these groups were um, now seeking their own um, uh, inequality and access to the society that they hadn't had before. And what the right did was say, oh, you know what, that's because they're selfish. And that's where the spiritual, uh, the lack of sense of connection to each other comes from, is the selfishness of these special interests that are looking out just for themselves. Um, but meanwhile, the right was the primary force in the society that was championing the ethos of selfishness and materialism in the world of work. Because in the world of work, they were saying that um, the uh, ecological issues or social responsibility issues should not be introduced into the economy. That the, instead, that the economy should be run on the basis of each corporation and each individual in the corporation pursuing his or her own self-interest to the greatest extent without regard to the consequences for others. And then the market would magically reconcile all these conflicting interests and produce the greatest good for all. So you might ask how they got away with that, because they were on the one hand championing the selfishness and materialism in the world of work, and on the other hand um, articulating the pain that people feel when they come home into a world and bring, bring home the values that they, uh, they learned as they inevitably will. And the way they got away with it is because the liberal and progressive forces in the society, by and large, um, weren't even in the relevant ballpark, don't have a clue about the spiritual issues in the society, and uh, by and large tend to ignore or dismiss them, um, which is, a, uh, from my standpoint, a, a tr tragedy, because the liberal and progressive forces have, by and large, again, I'm saying by and large, not entirely, but by and large have tended to articulate the problems in our society in terms of inclusion and exclusion and have said what we want to do is to take all those groups and all those individuals who have not been allowed to experience the benefits of the society and eliminate those the things the barriers that have kept them from enjoying the benefits of the society now I come from that tradition and I'm very supportive of it in, in fact um, I totally support that agenda, because uh, the inclusion agenda, because it seems to me impossible to say, well, I recognize you as an embodiment of the sacred. You know, I see your beauty as, a, as an individual. And yet, at the same time, I don't care whether you um, have a um, starve to death tonight, or whether you have a place to sleep, or whether you have health care. Um, it seems impossible to me to say, I recognize the unity of all being, or I recognize the sacredness of each, and, and then turn your back on them when it comes to... And, and that, in fact, was one of the fundamental messages that both the prophets and Jesus and many other spiritual leaders have said, is that you, um, uh, no matter how much connection you have to the s spiritual wonder of the universe, if you turn your back on your fellow human beings, if you are not agitated about that, if you aren't moved to act to change that, you've missed it. You've, you don't really have the spiritual consciousness. So, um, so, but, so I am totally with the liberal progressive forces on, their, on that point. 
But the problem was is that that's only one dimension. And it doesn't really address the spiritual crisis at the other levels that they're manifested in this society. Because most people in the society are not dealing primarily with the issues of exclusion. And nevertheless are in tremendous pain. Because the elements that I discussed before, the absence of, of an ethical and spiritual and loving consciousness in daily life, um, are not because of the deprivation of material needs, but because of the deprivation of meaning. Because people are hungry for a framework of meaning and purpose that transcends the individualism and selfishness of the competitive market and connects us to something that is transcendent, connects us to something that has ultimate value. So here's where another level in which spirit really matters and in which, which led me and others to start Tikkun magazine. So that's why I'm circulating it because Tikkun is a spiritual magazine that came out of the Jewish world at first. But today about 50% of our writers and 50% of our readers are not Jewish. And um, it deals not only with Jewish issues but with this spiritual, the issue of the spiritual transformation of the society. And we put that together and have started to develop a, um, what we call a, an emancipatory spirituality. Emancipatory spirituality. That is a spirituality that is not only concerned with us in our own individual lives and in our own individual connect, uh, connection to our souls and through our souls to the, um, to the unity of all being, but is also concerned with the transformation of the larger society. And and sees the spiritual issues as really the fundamental deprivation. Um, if if um, the, the left and Marxists used to say, well, the fundamental deprivation is material deprivation and capitalism will never be able to fulfill it, then what we say is, no, the fundamental deprivation is the spiritual deprivation. And that, that this is the fundamental thing that is absent from the society, which causes, in fact, many of the social problems that we see around us are actually irrational ways of people acting out the deprivation of meaning in their life and seeking to achieve meaning in ways that, that say, we might not think really work, but which nevertheless are understandable. There's a lot less irrationality. In fact, one of the things I tried to do in the book is um, through some of the cases that I had as a psychotherapist, I present some of the cases that I worked with pe various people and try to show how things that seemed to be psychological issues for people actually were rooted in the deprivation of spirit in their lives. And that it's the deprivation of spirit that is a, a central deprivation, both on the individual level and on the collect, collective social level, that so much of the irrationality, either in our own lives or in the lives of the social institutions around us, can be understood much more deeply if you understand them as responses to, sometimes irrational responses, but nevertheless, but responses to the hunger for connection, the hunger for love, the hunger for being part of a world that has some framework of meaning and purpose, and the deprivation of those, those needs in their daily lives. So in, emancip in the emancipatory spirituality that I uh, try to lay out in this, in, in this book, Spirit, Spirit Matters, we talk about building a, a spiritual transformative movement in the world, a spiritual transformative movement that is that operates on both the inner level and the outer level. Uh, I have been part of social change movements for the last 35 years, and I've been very discouraged with them. And the reason I've been discouraged with them is because although many of them have achieved incredible, incredible things in the world, things that seemed impossible to achieve when we first started out, 
um, they've almost always focused on the external and not adequately developed the internal. And um, as a result, people burn out after a few years or maybe in some cases five or ten years. But after a while, people can't sustain that activity. And so they then say, well, I tried this, the social change activities and it didn't, uh, didn't work. And I think that that's right, that it didn't work because there wasn't that other, that other um, dimension, um, the dimension of the inner life. And yet I've also seen so many people who have said to me, you know, um, I've decided that what I really want to do is to start working on myself. And, um, and once I've got that together, then I'll get involved in lar these larger issues. And I've seen that also not working because, um, in fact, for the re all the reasons that I talked about in the larger social order, we're never going to get ourselves totally together. <laughs> and there will always be so much more to, to work on, in part because we're living in a social world that constantly is pushing us to, in the wrong direction that, that because of its wrong bottom line. Um, it's constantly so that as people say, okay, well, I'll, I'll deal with those larger questions once I get myself together, they end up never getting themselves together at an adequate and sufficient level. And which also reminds me of a, just a, one little side point. One of the things that people used to say to me in the social change movements was, you know, I came into the social change movement and I found that people were um, very disappointing. They were just as screwed up as everybody else. <laughs> They had these great ideals, and then they were just as screwed up as everybody else. To it, to it, to which I say, duh. <laughs> I mean, this, and this is sort of like this is one of the things that I did learn from my spiritual training in Torah, uh, because the the first revelation that God gives in Torah is is that the world can be transformed, and the Ten Commandments are sort of embodiments of the way the world can be transformed. But no sooner has the Jewish people gotten it than within 40 days they're building a golden calf and saying, can we go back to Egypt, please? It was so much nicer being uh, slaves than having to deal with this kind of consciousness that the world can be fundamentally transformed. It's too much for us. We want to go back to something that's easy. And, and, so, um, and Moses is furious, breaks the tablets and so forth. And God says, okay, time for a second revelation. And the second revelation is that, that, that Moses gets is this one. It says, the Lord, the Lord, full of mercy and compassion, long forbearing and uh, abundant in loving kindness. And so here's the loving kindness teaching, <laughs> right? That, that when you go into a social change movement and find people screwed up, that's obvious. I say, duh, because that's all there is on the planet. <laughs> and... There, there are only limited, screwed-up human beings. There, there isn't anybody else. And so, so, so of course, if you're going to be in a, any kind of movement, a social movement, a spiritual movement, whatever it is, we will always be somewhat disappointed in each other. We will always find things that there are to be disappointed in, and we will be somewhat right. But the appropriate attitude towards that is a great deal of compassion, of loving kindness towards ourselves and towards each other, to recognize the limitations that each of us has and to then, in a, love, in a kind and loving and gentle way, to support each other to move as far as we can um, and to support ourselves to move as far as we can. So if these two elements of both working on our inner lives and working on a social transformation, that's what's involved in emancipatory spirituality. 
and then I'll just say one more thing, and then, then maybe we can do a little conversation or whatever is, <laughs> works as the next thing. So an emancipatory spirituality, well, what's its, what's its program, you might say? Well, um, the, in this book, uh, Spirit Matters, and, um, uh, and um, I only brought a, few, I brought a few copies I have in the, in the car. Anybody wants, I'll sign it or whatever. You know, if you w want to get it or you want to get it at Amazon.com or whatever, um, or a local bookstore if they have, I have it. Um, I lay out some of what, the, what this is about, but let's say the main, the main thrust is point number one, we need a new bottom line. And that's what a, an emancipatory spirituality, its program is. A new definition of productivity, efficiency, and rationality. This is a much deeper way of going at, at uh, political transformation than saying, well, we need this change over here and this change over here. No, we need a whole new bottom line. We need a definition of productivity, efficiency, and rationality that says an institution or social, pro or a social practice is efficient, productive, and rational, not just to the extent that it maximizes money and power, but to the extent that it maximizes loving and caring, to the extent that it maximizes our ethical, spiritual, and ecological sensitivity, and to the extent that it makes it possible for people and encourages and sustains people to look at each other in the universe, not only in a narrow utilitarian way, but rather in a way that um, emphasizes awe and wonder and radical amazement at the grandeur of creation. Mm -hmm. Now, if you understand what this program is, okay, um, this, uh, this would be, we would immediately see that most of the social institutions and practices around us are wildly irrational unproductive and inefficient, because they don't tend to, I don't mean that they don't ever, but they don't tend to sustain loving and caring people. They don't tend to produce people who are ec uh, ecologically, ethically, and spiritually sensitive. They don't tend to create um, people who are capable of responding to the world with awe, wonder, and radical amazement. And so if you just took this point seriously and said, yes, this is what it means to be a spiritual person. Um, well, now, then what would, a, um, what would it be like to go for this in the world? Well, the first step would be to come out of the closet as spiritual people. By, the by coming out of the closet as spiritual people, I mean the following. We have, um, um, <clears throat> many of us who are in the spiritual world have either some time each day when we meditate or some, some uh, Shabbat or Sunday or some time that we give more time to our spiritual practice. And what, I'm, what um, I'm saying in Spirit Matters and what we're trying to do in, in Tikkun Magazine is build a community of people who are willing to say, no, it's not just for the weekend and it's not just for the hour of meditation. We want to bring our spiritual insights into the rest of our lives, into daily life, into the work world, into the institutions that we, in, uh, that we live in and change those institutions according to a new bottom line of love and caring, of awe and wonder, of ethical, spiritual, and ecological sensitivity. So coming out of the closet means saying that to people. Now if you do, probably the first thing will happen is your friends will say, um, are you crazy? Um, do, do you really think that that, I mean, don't you know that everybody's just out for themselves? You can't have a new bottom line in this society. Don't you, you know, uh, see who just won the election? You know, I mean, do, do, aren't you, are you, and and what we then say to people is, no, stop. Stop them when they say that and say, it's not true. 
it's not true about me, and I don't even think it's true about you, that that's really what your bottom line is. Eight out of ten of your friends will probably immediately agree that it's not true about them. The other two will say, yes, it is, because they want to win the argument so badly. <laughs> but if they're really your friends, within, a, within, um, uh, within a, a week or two, they'll come back and say, you know, you were right. It's not really true about me. It's only true about everyone else. <laughs> and and this, is, this is really like the center, what I call in the, in the book, the central pathogenic belief of our society. The central pathogenic belief is the belief that everyone else is, only wants ma narrow material self-interest and that it's only you and the other people at Spirit Rock or the other people at, in your church or synagogue or the other people in, you, in your family who have a different set of values. But everybody else is really, um, really wants the world the way in which it is and that's why it is that way. But no, it's not true. I got this actually um, most intensely when I gave something like this talk at, to a group of um, 400 Methodists in Kansas. And after, after the talk, um, I had tremendous response, standing ovation, everybody's so excited. But then they came up to me and said, you know, these are wonderful ideas. We'd love to live by a new bottom line. Only it'll never work because it's only us Methodists in Kansas who want this. <laughs> and so I, so I said, well, wh what makes you think that? And they said, well, we read books, we, we watch television, we, we, we know what other people are like. You know, we see what people are like on the, co on the coast. Every, every, everybody there, you know, you see it all the time on television, you see it in the, in the, in the newspapers, and you, everybody there is just out for themselves. Now, on the other hand, when I talk about this in New York or Washington or San Francisco or Los Angeles, people say, well, these are very wonderful ideas and we like them, but middle America? <laughs> They'll never get, get it. And that's how it is. Everybody, is. everybody is convinced that the world can't be different. And because of that, we can say, yeah, I've got my little place at Spirit Rock, or I've got Beit Tikkun Synagogue in San Francisco, or I've got my church here, um, or my meditation group, or whatever, and that's, a, that's an oasis of, of um, decency and goodness and spiritual centeredness, but... Every place else is screwed up and couldn't be any different. And because of that, even if I'm, even if I'm moved by this, you know, what Rabbi Lerner is saying a little bit, I, I'll, I'll, I'll still say, but I got to go back into the rest of my world and present myself as a rational being, namely one who's going to act by the criteria that are the established criteria in the world as it is set up right now. Because I don't want, if I start talking about a new bottom line of love and caring, a new bottom line of awe and wonder, a bottom, uh, a bottom line of ethical, spiritual, ecological sensitivity, people are, I'm going to lose all my credibility. Uh, all the stuff that I've worked so hard to make myself seem res responsible and intelligent to everybody, everybody's going to dismiss me immediately. So consequently, even though each of us has these desires, we become the other to everybody else's other. We present ourselves as though we are the normal human being behaving according to this criteria. And when other people peer out into the world to see if it's possible for them to go for their highest um, beliefs, they see you and me and everyone else acting according to the established criteria of rationality. And they say, no, it's impossible. I can't go for it. 
and we see them and say the same thing. And so we all become the others to everybody's other, and that's what keeps it in place. And so part of what we're doing in, in Tikkun Magazine and now in, uh, uh, I've st it, with the book, I've started to create a Spirit Matters network, a network of people who want to be involved in this kind of transformation. And um, what we're doing in particular is asking people in particular professions, um, lawyers, doctors, Indian chiefs, whatever you are, whatever, whatever the area is, small business people, uh, consultants, whatever, to start talking to other people in their same area about what it would look like to just be engaged in that conversation about what it might look like in your world of work or in, your, in any social institution. What could it look like? to just allow yourself to go with that fantasy where the only rule is don't allow the reality police in. The reality police being all the voices in your head that say there's some day that won't allow it to ever happen. And because they won't let it happen, there's no point in trying to make it happen, um, to even think about what could, could be different. So in the book, in Spirit Matters, I take various areas like education, law, medicine, the economy, and say here's what it could look like. As an example, in education, I, for example, I say, okay, in if you took these ideas in education, then you would say, um, well, well, number one, our school systems are going to be judged by how much loving and caring they produce in their students. Mm -hmm. And uh, teachers are going to be hired and fired and evaluated on that basis. Okay, how much are they able to produce um, awe and wonder in their students? How much have they been able to generate that? Um, in order to do that, you're going to have to also make sure that that's what gets rewarded in getting into college and so forth. And I talk about all kinds of specifics of how, what it would look like to create an educational system where you were trying to do that. Because as you, as you look at the specifics, it starts to sound not so crazy. For example, here's one, one specific that I suggest. That starting in fourth grade and then in each grade level up from there, that each student be assigned a younger student, maybe uh, 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 two, two or three grades younger, to mentor, and that all through the education process, the, um, the teacher would be your uh, supervisor in mentoring of a, a younger student. So that instead of today, where the main experience that people get in school is the experience of how do I compete with each other so I can get the best grades and the best um, scores on the college boards to get into the right school, the main experience, or at least a main experience, would be how do I figure out how to take care of this younger kid? How do I, how do I um, figure out how to teach her or him? How do I figure out how to help her or him adjust to the social realities of the school and the problems that are happening for him? How do I really be a mentor and a, uh, and a carer for somebody else? Well, of course, if that's what you were rewarding in school, then you would get a different kind of person coming out of school. But if you're rewarding people who are best at um, college board skills, um, well, then you get a different kind of person coming out of schools, if you see what I mean. So that's, it's just one tiny little example of what it would be like if you started seriously to think about transforming the public sphere, transforming our social and political institutions according to, and our economic institutions with a new bottom line. Well, this is sort of what emancipatory spirituality is about. So it's part of why I, I'm, I'm wanting you to you know, subscribe to the magazine and so I've passed that around and has, where is it, by the way? Has everybody seen it yet or? Yeah, okay, it's getting around a little bit. Um, 
why I'd love to have you read the book. By, by the way, I just came back from England, and somebody said to me, well, um, isn't it funny that you end up saying, buy the book, when you're saying <laughs> so, so I said there, I don't know if I could get away with, I don't know if I could get away with this here or not, but I'll try, I'll, I'll try it if everybody agrees to not report this. As far as I'm concerned, you could take the book and make 100 copies of it by, by copying it and give it away for free. I'm not concerned to sell the book, but I'm very concerned to have people read it. And it would be totally okay with me, as long as you don't tell the publisher, because I think I might get into trouble, um, that it would be totally okay with me if, say, let's say, I'm not saying this generally, I'll say it for a spiritual community that I have a special connection with, okay? <laughs> Take the book and make 100 copies and give it away free. I'm not interested in the money. I'm really interested in having people read it and think about these ideas. Um, Right. You're absolutely right. And um, uh, you're absolutely right. And so you do get it. Great. Well, but more importantly, um, I, I actually would like to, for those who, who are interested in this, I, I don't seem to, maybe there's a blank piece of paper. I, I do have an email list to let people know about. Um, this building of a Spirit Matters network and put you on the email list and so forth. And if you're interested, connect through Tikkun Magazine, which, um, of course, you're all invited, if any of you are interested, to come to Beit Tikkun Synagogue. It meets at the Jewish Community Center in San Francisco. Uh, there, too, you don't have to be Jewish to come to, this, <laughs> come to the service. A lot of people aren't who come uh, on uh, Friday, uh, this Friday night at 7.30 is our next, is our next service. Um, but what I really want to say to you is this, is that there is, um, that all this that sounds so, sort of utopian, it's, um, it's no more utopian and no more fanciful than, uh, those, than it was for 35 years ago for a small group of women to come forward and say, we want to change this society. We want to make it uh, one in which um, we want to overcome the patriarchy. They were greeted with the same kind of response that I think would be reasonable for you to be greeting me, which is sort of, is, is he out of his mind? Um, uh, that, that's how they were greeted also. Um, uh, they were asked, well, don't you know anything about the last 10,000 years of human history? Um, can you show us a society where this works, where women have equal power with men? And the answer was no. We couldn't show, the, they couldn't show a society where it worked, and they couldn't, and there wasn't a historical examples and uh, like that. Um, luckily for us, and I'd say thank God, because that's how I understand God is as the force of healing and transformation in the universe. Thank God, those women were not did not accept rationality. They weren't al allowing themselves to to accept the criterion um, of what is as a criterion for what could be. In Judaism, that's what we call idolatry. Idolatry is being a realist. That is, um, idolatry is being a realist. It is being somebody who believes that that which is, is the criterion of that which can be. Um, to believe in God in Judaism is to believe that there is a force of healing and transformation in the universe that makes possible the transformation from that which is to that which could and should be. And that, that's, that's, who, that's who it is. That's who God is. That's what it is to believe in God. So 
Um, thank God that those women, they, may not, they, they certainly wouldn't have called it believing in God, but they believed in God. They believed that there was the possibility of transformation and healing. And as a result, not to say that patriarchy has been dismantled, but the changes that have occurred in the past 35 years are so wildly beyond what anybody would have rationally predicted were possible at that time. And I'm saying to you, the same thing is possible now in the spiritual world. The same thing is possible in the spiritual world now. And for the same reason, because it's not as if what I'm saying to you is, wouldn't it be nice if people had spiritual needs? No, what I'm trying to say to you is, the spiritual needs are there. They are deeply there. They have been, and if they are not addressed in a progressive and loving way, they will be appropriated in a destructive and hurtful way. But the spiritual deprivation is already there. And hence, the, the spiritual need is already there. And the question is, is how that will be organized and harnessed. And it can be harnessed in a liberatory way in, uh, towards an emancipatory spirituality. So um, we could do that together. So. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> There's nothing left to say, Michael. Amen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you very, very, very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.